0: I, I think I was always attracted to the idea of this ideology that I can do better. How can I do better? And I remember giving one of my first interviews and in, it was after Madison Square Gardens and somebody asks, the, the question was poised to me is, what made you choose running? And I said, to be honest, I wasn't even sure running was going to be it. But what I was sure about is that I wanted to be the best at something.
1: And I let it get the better of me, but I learned very quickly that it's all kind of just excess noise if you like which is kind of superfluous to getting out there and actually running so once I don't let that get into my head or set in or you know let it negatively affect my performances you know at the end of the day all I have to do is go out there and run one lap with 10 hurdles which sounds simple but that's what I always try and bring it back to and to be honest I absolutely love I thrive off of and I get a really good buzz off of the fact that like that. It's only one lap with 10 hurdles, whether I'm doing it at training in Limerick or if I'm in, you know, a massive stadium somewhere across the world. I I love that.
2: Now I can just refocus and just focus on the main event, the main race. If you've run 20 races and one bad one right before the one that you really want to run well in, it's amazing how that can affect you because you can, you you're on a roll and everything is going smoothly, you're not having any problems, and then all of a sudden at the last hurdle you're kind of... Stumble. I think it, probably more mentally than physically that can throw you a little bit and um, get you to question yourself but I think I was strong enough to know that this was a chance for me and I had to just forget about it and move on.
3: When I got off the train I used to have to run up Buckingham Street with my bag so added to Racing Joe from Sydney Parade to John's Road and Sandymount I used to run up the hill of Buckingham Street so a bit like the Kenyan athletes running to school. I was constantly running. And I had to run fast in the morning because I wanted to be in time for class. And coming home at lunch, it ran down the hill, so it was easy. Then I got off the train I used to scut off the back of the train nearly kidding myself much to the angst of the guy who worked the gates and every day I'd be going around the church St. John's Church and I'd hear the thumping of my brother's feet this great athlete was my brother Joe and he'd pass me on the 50 yards Often I would just
4: you don't want to get out of the house and go run. And I would just take out all my frustrations on a run and go out and hammer it. And uh, that continued for a long time for me. I mean, ever since I was probably early teenage years, all the way through my first years in college. I mean, when I came to America, same thing, you know, you'd always hear something happen at home and I'd, I'd just go out and I'd hammer a run.
5: So in college, all I concentrated on was the training. And literally what got me to that Olympic Games, it was pure obsession with it.
6: And lo and behold, Virginia came up to home straight on the Phoenix Park main road, right opposite the zoo, and I won the race. And I never forget the look on both gents' face when they saw this skinny littin' 11 year old beating the under 14s. That's when Athletics found me.
7: That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now your program, what's the big idea?
6: Well, they have learned to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works.
7: I moved over here, and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and learn my
6: living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency.
8: Hello and welcome to this very special athletics compilation episode of An Irishman Abroad. Across the last eight years, we have put out an episode every single Sunday without missing a single week in that time. And I guess I didn't have a huge interest in athletics until a year ago when I rang Sonia O'Sullivan and asked her if she could teach me how to run without my knees turning to chalk. What resulted was the Irishman running abroad challenge, my attempt to run 2000 kilometers in the space of 12 months in support of my chosen charity partner Jigsaw.ie. And every single week, Sonia Sullivan, the greatest Irish athlete of all time, has helped me to do it along with thousands of you, the listeners. It's been an unbelievable road. I can't believe that 2,000 kilometres is distinctly on the horizon and we're ramping up a little bit of fundraising for it. Go to idonate.ie and search my name or the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge to join in or simply donate to the cause. We're trying to raise as much as possible for jigsaw.ie, my chosen charity partner, who, if you don't already know, are an unbelievable Irish mental health charity that work in communities to help equip young Irish people with the mental health skills they will need to survive in life and beyond. They've been doing this for a long time, but since the pandemic, they've seen a huge jump in demand for their services. We are looking at a mental health emergency across the world after this and jigsaw.ie are doing everything they can to help head that off by helping the young people of ireland across all communities back home so go to idonate.ie to support me on the irishman running abroad challenge but today's episode as i said is the compilation of all of the athletes that we've had on the show. You will hear from everyone, from Rob Heffernan, uh, Sinead Diver, Thomas Barr, Marcus O'Sullivan, Kieran O'Leonard, Ronnie Delaney, David Gillick, Eamon Cochlin, Sonia herself, and of course... Dervil O'Rourke. There is so much to cover here but I feel like it'll whet your appetite for what is available over on patreon.com. The full archive as I said going back eight years. Eight years of episodes. Never missed a Sunday. Can barely believe it but these episodes are available in full over there along with hundreds hundreds more. If you sign up Just for a price of a pint each month, you'll get access to that archive. And of course, our three extra large episodes with Sonia on a Tuesday, Marion on a Friday and the big interview each Sunday. I should say next Sunday's guest, Damien Dempsey, is an unbelievable chat that I've just recorded. I think you're really going to love. But let's dig straight into this compilation episode. And where we're going to start, we're going to break it down into three sections. In the first section, you're going to hear from Robert Heffernan Sinead Diver and Thomas Barr, all talking about the mental challenges that come with this emotionally. Robert will talk about the emotional challenges that he would faced. Sinead is going to talk about her own internal monologue, which is something that I think a lot of us struggle with when your body is screaming at you to stop. And Tom Barr will talk about the days when his commitment to the sport is most tested. And finally, we'll hear from Marcus O'Sullivan and what is maybe the most important piece of information that any of us can learn, and that is getting comfortable with the idea of failure.
9: You don't even have to be a teenager. This happens with adults as well, you know. it's it, I've Even chatting to my daughter, Megan, Know i would be chatting to her about stuff and even about my bad race last week and, you know, the way adults kind of dictate the kids as if they know it all. But adults have their own issues that they go through and their own motivational issues that they have to get over and... Just going on about, ah, I don't know where to start. You know, because I had a really bad race last week and, and I went through all of them emotions last week. And I'm really, really done for three days and I'm doubting everything now about myself, even after all all of the success I've had. And doubting, am I able for this anymore? Is my motivation gone? Am I gone soft? Do I miss the kids too much? Are the kids after taking my age? And, you know, everything for three days, I stay really done. But then I start regrouping again. And I said, you know, you're entitled to be dung and depressed for three days, but don't stay dung for too long, you know. Kinda, yeah. You know, even even our Lord was dung for three days before he rose. Like,
8: <laughs> well, This will be flabbergasting for a lot of people when they consider your record and when they look at five Olympics, when they look at the, you know, the hall of medals that you have. And when I talked to the team behind uh, the road to Rio, they pointed this out that, you know, you are a man who embraces those emotions, doesn't like a lot of athletes would bury it, would simply go, no, you don't feel down. No, 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 you're still the man in a Conor McGregor style style of way. But you very much embrace it and go, right, I'm allowed to feel these feelings yeah, and they're healthy. ...for me to build up to where I need to be, correct?
9: Yeah, 100%. But it's still not nice going through it, Charlotte. you know? Mm. Like this, like last week was... ...last week was a very tough week for me after, you know, having a bad result. and, And then I look back and I question everything. But then I look back to 2003, and that's 13 years ago, and... I can remember when the World Championships were going on in Paris and I was lying in bed. I was living in an apartment inside in town and I had stress fractures in my back. I was going out too much. I had no plan. I could be tried to train for five days, but because I was injured and kept getting injured, if there was any distraction at all, I was off in town and out, and out clubbing and I'd be completely depressed then after that because you know you're doing the wrong thing. But you I had no support network around me. You know? I had no kind of strong guidance and people and you know you, you can bring that kind of depression on yourself as well when you're doing the wrong stuff like so you know it can be a vicious cycle if you feel down over something and then you go out and you feel down and i think sometimes you you know for me i have to take control of it and not let it spiral out of control because you could get yourself into a rut like sure. so I, I look back last week was a bad week but i had bad weeks in 2003 i've had bad weeks when i came home from the olympics in sydney i've had bad weeks after The World Championships in 2009 I went through a really bad period Where I doubted everything about myself And my motivation And I was going to retire I was gone, I was out of the sport I said there's more to life And then came back with a new goal And a new motivation And I won three medals after that So I was very close to retiring then I was very close to retiring in 2006 Before, 2005 Before I met Marion I had a couple of sports I had a Gilmore's groin sports hernias and nobody, I was misdiagnosed wrong. So anytime I tried to get back training, I would break down again after a few days. And I didn't know if it was psychosomatic or was it physical, but I was like going, you know, this this is my head. And then I met Marion and she started kind of, I had no confidence at all. Like I went through a period where I was delivering coal with my brother-in-law on a Saturday back doing a little bit of labouring for my brother because I had no finishes for a few years. I was injured two thousand and three, disqualified in the Olympics two thousand and four, disqualified in the world championships in two thousand and five, injured two thousand and six, so all of a sudden this brilliant promising career is now gone, pear shaped. I'm back on a building site delivering coal. Is this what I'm not that there's anything wrong with it, but after going to a couple of Olympics and world championships, is this what I'm after being resorted back to? And it really, really got me done, you know, that I hadn't developed other areas of my life. And
8: It's amazing, Rob, because you you then describe the the feeling of this glimmer of hope or this coming through it. And I know we've dealt with uh, the kind of mental stress of sport. We've taught, we've had guests on who have said that these dark days, you have to find it in yourself, Brezzy, saying that you've believed that this too will pass. Is it a case of you wake up one morning and you're like, you know what, I'm not actually feeling that bad about this?
9: Yeah, but, well, this, this, I think if you take positive action, like I went to, as I say, I went to a physio This, so I have a bit of a problem with my hip. So when I start evaluating why things went wrong at the weekend, I went away, I got my blood all checked. I went to the gym, I have a problem with my hip. So then when I take the emotion out of stuff and I just kind of being rational about it, kind of go, okay, Rob, Maybe you were a virus. I think you were a virus on Saturday. You were sick. You couldn't train on Thursday. You got sick on Wednesday. I nearly fainted last Tuesday. I was so weak. I had to go to the doctor. So obviously there was something in my system. I got my bloods done. My bloods were good. But I have a bit of a problem. My, some, my thyroid function is up. So that's something else I have to investigate. I have a problem with my hip. That doesn't allow me to open my hips so up properly and go fast. So no, I need to fix that. So I went to a physio this morning. He had a look at my hip, did a load of work in my hips and I went out training afterwards and say, like, Oh no, this is working. It's positive, you know, it's good. Sure. So if I do this again I'm gonna let it settle and I'm in better form. So if I take positive actions and things and just get back in the horse and drive on and you know, and it's no different to life. Like I I've been away I remember being at altitude in Lavinio in twenty ten and my godmother died when I was out there and it went on on and off, you know that she came back. They brought her back, and she went. And she came back, and I had to. And I had to miss that funeral, and and I remember just being so down out there, and couldn't sleep the whole night. Over, I was so upset, and the next morning I wasn't able to train. But I went back to bed during the day, and I can always remember I went out that evening, and I did 30k, and I had to walk through the tunnels in Lavinia, and it was like it was like a bad dream. Everything was disorientated, but it kind of helped me deal with stuff and process stuff. And I didn't, I couldn't come home, you know. Hmm. But because I had a bigger goal and a bigger thing, I was like, "Going, no, my aunt would have understood, my mother would have understood, my grandmother would have understood." And when you're working towards a goal, you're going to have bumps in the road, and you need to you need to overcome them, you know.
10: It it changes for every marathon. So that first one in Melbourne, it was I actually found it fine, like mentally and everything, because there was no expectation at all. I could have completely bombed out, and it wouldn't matter, you know. It was just have a go at this marathon and see how you do so i really enjoyed it (laughs) i thought that wasn't so bad at all (laughs) Um, but then you know the next marathon you do then you have there is expectation and this pressure and you want to do better and actually my second marathon was at the world champs so i was like i cannot stuff this up like i have to you know prove it
8: wasn't a fluke
10: yeah prove it wasn't a fluke and yeah not have athletics australia regret that they selected me for the team and I felt a lot more pressure for that one. Um, but then, yeah, and then we'll say London last year, I felt an extraordinary amount of pressure for that one. And it didn't really, it didn't help that I was leading for <laughs> a for lot of it. it yeah. um, there was a lot of, I had a lot of thoughts going through in my mind.
8: So talk us, we have time and I, I'm like really, really curious as to that conversation, because I think a lot of people struggle with long form exercise of any sort because there's a a kind of an enforced meditation to it. And a lot of people aren't good at being alone with their thoughts. You have a very Zen Buddhist calm around (laughs) you, if you don't mind me saying. You're very, very still. There's a stillness. And I don't get the impression that you've and maybe I'm wrong, that you fret that
10: um, much. No, I, I would. I think I'm t- I tend to be more nervous the night before a marathon. Um, and I often have difficulty sleeping that night. But then the morning of, I'm usually a lot better. Um, but London Marathon, and that's how I was for London. But it was a lot different then because normally I'm in in the mix of people mm. and you know, I'm not one of the main contenders, so there's no focus on me or anything. Whereas for London I was at right the front of the marathon. Yeah. And I was really embarrassed initially. Embarrassed? Like, yeah. To be I at just the front. thought, oh God. Everyone's like, looking at me. I just thought they're gonna think I'm a fool to go out. I it appeared that I had gone out too hard, but I had gone out at the pace that I wanted to go out at and everyone else had started it really slowly. So there was all the Africans who everyone expected to be leading. I mean, there was a pace group for them. Yeah. I think for maybe 216. And they were all behind me. And (laughs) I was like, this (laughs) is going to look terrible.
8: It is going through your head. People are going, look at this crazy Irish Australian lady.
10: Yeah. And and looking back in the marathon, the commentary did reflect that. They were like, look at this 42-year-old, you know, this is a big mistake. She's going way faster than her ability and she's going to blow up. But thankfully, I didn't hear that during the race. Mm. I would have been very upset by it. But I kept checking my watch. I was like, "No, this is this is my pace. This so is the that pace." That how I you set. keep
8: the pace is the, just the keep the constant watch checking, or um, is no, there an internal? I ticker? generally
10: generally don't look at my watch that much. Um, I know what pace I want to set out at and I usually do that by feel. I'll check the first couple of kilometers to make sure I haven't gone too hard because it's very easy to do that at the start of a marathon and get caught up in the excitement. Mm. Um, but then I'll settle into a pace and I'll usually run the a lot of it by feel. Um, yeah. But for that one, because I was so far ahead, I just kept checking to make sure you, know, it's, you is, know I haven't gone too normal? fast Yeah. but then the pack caught me just before 5k which I was very relieved about and I was like this is great because was going to be windy and I thought I'll just sit in the pack and then the next thing I was hanging off the back of the pack because they had surged to like a 308 kilometre and the next thing then I was in the middle of the pack and we had slowed down to 350 per k or something like that and the Africans like to do that like surge a lot in a race And it like saps the energy from your legs.
8: Is that part of the reason for doing it?
10: I think so, yeah. So I thought, I'm not doing this. I haven't come all the way to London to run somebody else's race. So I just got out on my own again, not with the intention of taking off again, but just to go at my own pace. And I ended up getting like a 200 meter lead, I think, at one point. And by then I was very comfortable. I was like, this option is much better than sitting in a pack that's surging the whole way. And I'm so glad I did that because had I not done that, I wouldn't have gotten, probably not gotten an Olympic qualifier. I wouldn't have gotten the time that I wanted on mm. the PB. So, yeah, I was fine after, after that first 5K. And when I made the decision to go out and run by myself, I was fine after that. So
8: again, this question, I know I won't keep asking it, but is the monologue a complete discussion and focus on the race or does your mind drift?
10: Um it doesn't drift a whole lot. Um it you're constantly you're constantly thinking of okay I'm at this K this is the next K and the next drink stop that's coming up it's you're f- totally focused on the race and every now and then your mind will drift when you hear people call your name and stuff you'll kind of and th- that's not a bad thing either it's kind of nice to s- think about something else and mm. I think if you're feeling comfortable and settled into a pace you can think about other things, but it's usually things that, um, like I would think about my family. I think about the boys that would help you to to run well. Sure. Um, not not for that reason, but just, you know, it keeps you kind of calm and it's nice to think about them. Yeah, but, happy place. Yeah, but more than not during the race, you're thinking of, you're focused on the race. You've got to stay focused on it.
1: I do have times, not regularly, but say every couple of weeks or months from especially in the winter where those goals that you're working towards of major championships say olympics for example this year or in another year it could be european championships or you might have a couple of competitions lined up in the summer and it's usually the summer where you're aiming towards but you're training from about september october through the winter and that's that's where you really start to question Hmm. on a miserable day where it's raining it's windy, it's cold, there's sleet, and you're like, why the hell am I down here doing yeah. three by 600, 600 metres, 500 metres, 400 metres, 300 metres, or whatever it is, or going out into the hills in Cratlow and running up a load of hills, and am like, why am I doing this to myself? Do you know what I mean? I do. But for me, I would have a lot more of those thoughts if I was on my own. Mm. But because I'm with the training group, it's a social outlet, I enjoy it. We've a really good train. We've always had in in Limerick with Hayley and Drew. We've always had a really good group, and we have a really good group again now. A lot of the younger younger guys, because I'm just pushing on. I'm the old fella in the group now, but uh, it's savage crack, and that's what you know. It helps put those kind of feelings and thoughts at bay. And there might be days where I'm w- dwindling, and the lads will pick me up and be like, "Come on, one more runner, get this finished." And then there could be other days where I come down full of beans and the lads might be you know, dropping back a bit and I'll be the one to pick, to pick up the slack. And it, it works both ways. And I think that really, really helps in, in that pack mentality of just pulling everybody along because we're all working towards our own goals. But at the same time, we all have similar goals. Is, and that is to, to, to push on. Is, is
8: sprinting better suited to a country where the sun is out a lot more? Uh, sometimes i think that that's what scuppered irish sprinters so much is exactly what you just described
1: you would be absolutely correct really so you agree with that yeah yeah it is so much like we we go away for a training camp for two weeks in usually two weeks in january and two weeks in around easter time Hmm. and that's kind of the only time we get that really guaranteed good weather where we're training and when you're out there for the two weeks it's like god Training is so much easier when it's sunny every day. You're not worried about being cold and, you know, in between reps of, of, of runs that you're going to get cold and have to mm. keep the muscles warm. And for hurdling as well, it is very difficult to hurdle when it's really windy or wet or very cold because it's a very technical thing. You want to be able to do it technically well. You don't want to try and develop bad habits. So you do have to make sure you're going to do it well. And it can be hard to do it well when the weather is crap so yeah it is <laughs> the weather is definitely not help Irish athletes but I think at the same time that weather definitely as as cliched as it sounds is character building and does give you that mental edge whereby when it does come to running in a competition where the weather is good or you do get those that good weather it just puts you in such good humor and you're like you, you, you know, you've been through so many, this is the way I lo- try to look at it anyway, is that, you know, if you can train in the worst condition as possible, then, you know, coming to a competition where it's warm, it's nice, or going out to those warm weather training camps, you really do make the best of it. It wouldn't be nice to have it all year round, but I think then it would spoil us too much and
0: we'd become complacent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What the things that grow, and they grow exponentially, but they also collapse in an exponential fashion is confidence and now that could be attributed to anything from as you say stand up comedy to acting to uh, you, you lose your swagger yeah and and it you it's, you see it in you, you particularly see it having a kind of a business background a lot of friends in business and you see it in business you see it in industry a deal goes bad mm. you're publicly humiliated and you absolutely sink to your knees and you lose your swagger with your family, with your co-workers, with every everything. And it's it's somehow how do you try to reestablish yourself? As as athletes, you're publicly getting humiliated every time. Because if you run poorly, you're doing it in public. And you get you get used to it. And so when I started out this podcast, I talked about I got very comfortable with failure. And so consequently, you get used to it, and you can weather the storm. And a lot of times, you your great executives are your great, your, your, your great leaders, they, they can take the hits, they drop to the they, they drop to one knee, not two knees. <laughs> yeah. And they're back on track fairly soon, because they know it's part of the terrain. And I think you see it in athletics, you see it in all forms of art, in terms of like acting, uh, singing, everything. And it's hard to find that it factor. You call it the it factor. And, and sometimes having mentorship and a good body of guidance uh, from people, it can help explain what's happening. And it can give you the confidence to re-kickstart everything again. And I think that's that's the most important thing when you get to the higher up levels. You need more than anything. You need mentorship and you need very, very good common sense, navigational guidance systems from people, whether it's your parents, whether it's your coach, whether it's your close tight friends that want to see you do well, they're very, very important. I've always recognized that from the earliest of times.
8: So let me push you a little bit further on this one, Marcus. So you say I got comfortable with loss, right? What's the what's the difference between becoming comfortable with loss as in it becoming part of what you expect to happen, as in that team that's kind of understanding, well, we don't we don't win a lot. What's the difference between that and being someone who understands the benefit of a loss?
0: I I think the difference is um, and when I say getting if I use the word complacency, it for me, it wouldn't have been complacency. I would rec- I would recognize a loss. I remember one time I, I, I lost Milrose by, uh, I was about two feet. And after Milrose, my wife and I have a farm not too far from Manhattan, about an hour out from Manhattan. And I went out there, and she's looking out the kitchen window. And that day, I'm splitting wood as a kind of, um, I, I don't know whether it was a punishment to myself or I just wanted to be alone, but I'm out there and the stack is getting higher and higher and higher. And after about six or seven hours, she finally had to come out and so say, you, you need to stop spreading wood. I mean, oh I, I mean, so getting comfortable with failure doesn't mean you accept failure. Mm. I think failure is, uh, I used to have this um it's a statement in my, in my diary and it was, let me remember, it was uh, failure is the stomping ground for success and success is the lurking place for failure. And I recognize the fact that you can get too comfortable with success and all of a sudden failure will arrive at your doorstep. But likewise, there's no need to accept failure, but, but find out what it is that causes it. And moving in a direction of how do we fix the problem? What is it that we're doing? Getting cur- curiosity is, is, is a character is just probably an amazing characteristic of people. Whether it's in medicine, whether it's in art, whether it's in any field of life, being curious to the point of stupid, whereby you come across as being stupid, but all you are is being curious. Now, how does this work? Or, 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 or what can we, what can we do with this? Mm. You, you almost can come across as being silly but in many ways you're constantly taking information and you're constantly reshaping the way you think about things and so when you when when the team is failing what is it that we're doing right is it a, a member of the team that's leading them in a different direction that's one area is it technically are we doing too much too little is it the workload that they're doing in school? Is it is it is it a whole bunch of things? Is it just lack of talent for whatever want of a better way of putting it? And so being able to recognize why you're failing is a huge difference in terms of accepting failure. It's 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 using failure to actually kind of uh, create a better a better path to to be more successful.
8: In this next section, we're going to hear from Kieran O'Linart, Ronnie Delaney, the man himself and David Gillick. Now, Ronnie will talk a little bit about running so fast that he got booed in Madison Square Gardens. Maybe the highlight for me of the discussion with Ronnie and David will get into speaking about his own battle with eating comfort food, which is something you just don't think uh, elite athletes deal with, that they're so zeroed in. But I guess they face those challenges just like all of us. I know I'm an absolute chocoholic, (laughs) still at war with that food right now. So I found it incredibly heartening to hear David Gillick talk about that. That's later in this section. But to start with, you'll hear Kierno O'Linnard and how he spoke about teaching himself French through running.
4: Well, I I grew up in, I suppose, what you'd describe as a broken home. I mean, my dad was an unsavoury character, I suppose, is what I'd... i'll I'll verse it as and without going into too much detail i think he was the abuse suffered by myself my two brothers and my mom his hand being the eldest son often having especially as a teenager to hold your tongue or even try and keep the peace even though you wanted to fight out and lash out all the time often i would just you don't want to get out of the house and go run and i would just take out all my frustrations on a run and go out and hammer it and I um, mean that continued for a long time for me, I mean, ever since I was probably early teenage years all the way through my first years in college, I mean, when I came to America, same thing you know you 'd always hear something happen at home and i'd I'd just go out and i 'd hammer a run. It was not a very healthy way of doing it, really, you know again, I suppose that 's what i 'm kind of what I was gearing at is that the idea of thinking to yourself can be a positive or a negative thing when you 're out in the run and getting lost in it like. I, I pretty much taught myself French when I was running, when I was in secondary school, too, because I just I told myself one day that instead of being angry, I was just going to talk in French to myself all the time. Oh and I did, like, ended up like pretty much being fluent in French by the time I was 17. But it's it's easy then, I mean, you have good days and bad days. It was easy then to kind of go on the flip side and uh, and then let the anger take over. And that's led to you know, a number of other complications for me through injury, I think, because I've often gone out and pushed and hammered runs too hard because I've been angry, so... You just need to be careful with it, I think.
8: I mean, that's really fascinating that uh, there's obviously a a corner that gets turned for you with joining Leevale, which is the premier running club in the country, that suddenly running becomes something else. And Leevale has a tradition of sending guys abroad with scholarships. When did that thought first become a reality for you?
4: became reality pretty early for me I think probably when I was like you know maybe 14 years old I, it was kind of my two coaches I suppose Derrick Donovan and Tony Shine inside in Leevale who who've, who've kind of brought athletes like Mark Carroll and Mark Sir Sullivan through uh, they never really mentioned it to me specifically you know saying Kieran you'll go to America but it was always kind of alluded to as if that was the end goal without putting it in your head overtly and 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 like I suppose it became almost without having thinking, without kind of thinking too much about it, it all of a sudden became to where I was going to America and that was it. I didn't really feel like there was any other, there wasn't really another option for me there. That's just what athletes from Leeville who are good did. And and the, one of the reasons I enjoy being at Leeville is that one, you had a team around you and you had, you know, a good crack and, and banter and it was, the practice was fun. Like, you know, training was fun, but it was also the fact that you were always, you always had benchmarks to compare yourself to, um from athletes from previous generations and and you run you know you know and you had to kind of you almost had to live up to the tradition i suppose that was there you wanted to get out to compete not just for yourself but for what leave represented in middle distance middle distance running so yeah that was that was a really big you know positive aspect of being in the club there
3: the great athlete that uh, sucked out there's always a bit of that there but the asset test is that you are good the race on the, the test you win yeah when you continue to win we weren't arrogant and that was that was probably the most important thing of the lot that our demeanour had to be one of modesty Uh, we were articulate because we were getting good education and there was no there was zero tolerance to being a superstar so here we had superstars Don Bragg went on to act as Tarzan in films Mm -hmm. Charles Jenkins became foreign affairs person in Washington got doctorates I become the businessman here in Ireland. We all we all went on to different sort of. Now we all weren't perfect or angels. And like Don Bragg was quite wild in his own way. He was Tarzan, so he used to. He had to worry about him. If he went to a party, and so he might let the Tarzan roar out. Charles was elegant. Charles was In fact I call him Charles It's Charlie Jenkins. Charles was from Massachusetts, and he had this polished. New England sort of accent and we were both eloquent so we, we used to do the circuit of communion breakfast people go to communion and then there'd be a breakfast after and we'd, we'd go in and they, we'd speak and we'd be competing against each other to be wittier or funnier than the others <laughs> so wonderful, wonderful memories but your question really was much deeper than that, about no, the degree of knowing you're great. You're, only, you're only as great as Cliche, which was only as great as you're going to run mm-hmm. on that particular day. And the learning thing was being great and learning out of losses. And even to this day, I analyze some of my losses. I sound terribly self-centered, but it's fascinating as you get older and intellectually you move into different sort of phases. I've, I've thought more deeply about why I lost laterally than I did, say, when I was a young man. When I thought about why I lost then, it was what can I learn out of losing, mm-hmm. tactically what did I do, why didn't I analyse that guy, why didn't I know he had a kick, now, I only lost a few times, but it was still there, every time he lost, you learn something out of it, and I, I publicly would say you learn more out of losing than you learn out of winning, sounds cliche again, but. I don't think it is well, I think
8: it's John McEnroe said the exact same thing really? that it was his losses were his biggest lessons and that luckily
3: I preceded him I hope he didn't yeah. copy me
8: <laughs> amazingly um, you received some of the worst criticism and from your crowds uh, in Madison Square Garden when you were winning but not winning in the fashion that they believed you should. How did that affect you at the time, being booed by that many thousands of people throwing beer cups at you, and kind of, as you said,
3: you said they'd strangle you if they had the chance at one point, despite on on this incredible win streak? Yeah, it it used to bemuse me, because, and it bemused me particularly when I, I won a... okay one week I set the world record, they'd be going ape. The next week I'd have a race and the guys were useless and if I could run 4.15 and get away with it and win, I'd run 4.15 and they'd be raging with me. But then occasionally I won a great race in a slowish time and they'd be jumping out of the seats. I mean, you can only imagine, after some pictures, I have pictures of even the officials nearly jumping. And you win a race by a foot. I remember a great athlete, Tom Murphy, who was still a friend of mine. and. Tom, I raced him, I came down from the mile to race him because he was the champion half-miler and he was from Manhattan and I was from Villanova and we were competitive with each other at schools and I came down and I raced him in Madison Square Garden and I beat him by a foot and the crowd now, they never saw as exciting a race. There was a a sequence done in Sports Illustrator that said, how to beat Delaney, oops, and they showed 10 or 11 frames of the race. In each case I was two or three feet back or a foot back and at the last fifty meters I get a foot ahead of of, of, of Talmur. Now that race was seen by, say, twenty thousand people falling out of their seats and mouths swear God they hear the time, the time was one fifty two, which wasn't a bad time. The yeah. world record maybe indoors is one fifty. They start booing and I, they I hear the time, despite yeah. the entertainment yeah. they just received. And see, that's why I was amused. I would, I'd say, oh, my God. How? And occasionally I'd say it in the, in the hearing of uh, a journalist, which was stupid. Of uh, course, that then would become not a tabloid story, but become an aspect yeah, of the coverage of the race. They'd use it as a stick Yeah. Speech. The other analogy would be that when you... Occasionally you had to be a tiny bit rough when you were running indoors, because the bends were so tight. You had to manage yourself. Jim O'Leary taught me how to manage myself. In other words, the guys' crowd? Me, what to do? If you are going to touch someone to get them off, you're running you in, in off the track. Where to give them a little push? I was trained into into all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when I was racing, a man called Ross he was a great, great competitor. He recently died. He was World 1500 meters champion. He's a great Hungarian. László Tabury was another great Hungarian, but I raced him in Chicago, and the guy was trying to run me into the bleachers, you know, going around the, the, the last bend. So I had to give him a little gentle Irish touch, you know, <laughs> and I get by. And the official comes up to me and he says, "Delaney, you you're close to being disqualified tonight." And I always remember turning to the official and I said, Sit, what do you expect me to do? Say, excuse me, may I pass you? I said, I had to get by that guy. So that was the end of it. I mean, I think it's really remarkable as well. We'll
8: definitely put this aside after this. But the idea that, and I know New York fans are particularly fickle, I'm a a Knicks fan myself, and they'll routinely boo the team there. I wonder. the sense of entitlement of, of an audience in New York must have rankled with you even further when you considered that you were receiving no financial gain from any of this. Well, no, you couldn't take Not a accept. penny. Not a penny. I mean, that will you say that, and I'm aware of that fact for quite some time now, but to the listener that will flabbergast them, that this was pure sportsmanship Yeah. for the curiosity that you mentioned at the beginning... Of how good can we be, yeah. and you receive no remuneration in return.
3: It goes back to philosophy as well. My philosophy was to win, and I saw no point in trying to break my gut and smashing guys every week. If I could get away running four six, I ran four six. If I had to run a world record, I ran the world record. If I get away with really slow running, if I was running against guys who weren't. In my class, I would try and stroll around and do four twelve or four thirteen, and that was a, an intellectual decision because I knew you couldn't possibly have this output of trying to break world records every week, every single week, or yeah. running as fast as you could every week. And as you rightly pointed out, there was no material gain. In fact, as an amateur athlete, you you had to. If you wanted superior shoes, you had to buy superior shoes because the shoes Villanova gave me weren't great. So, my first four minute mile up, I, I spent $15 on a pair of shoes, and the sales guy wouldn't even give you the pair of shoes. You're, mm-hmm. going, to, you're going to be the seventh man in the world to, to run a four minute mile. No way! I think I borrowed $5 so I could make up the 15 but that was the the era and that was the beauty of the era that you were the contemporary world is totally different never to return again we'll never see the likes ever and and the essence of the Olympics is the thesis of mine is still the race Mm -hmm. so the race to me always was of the essence win win by a foot win by 25 yards run as hard as you have, have to to win, and this is my philosophy throughout my career. H- hence, I had such a short career, but such a successful career.
7: The comfort eating, like that, was it was it was a crutch, you know. I, I think as well. I, I suppose when you kind of go back a little bit as well, I did Celebrity Master Chef, and then next minute you're kind of thrown into this like whole area of like, oh, he he's a foodie. He's he's uh, always into his healthy nutrition and stuff like that. Whereas internally I was in turmoil. And all I wanted to do was just binge on food, and I think it comes back to those personas. Like I, yes, there was part of me trying to be that person, but then inside I wasn't comfortable with that. I wasn't happy in my environment, so food became that sort of outlet, you know. And if I was mm-hmm. having a bad day, or I was, I was anxious, or I was stressed, or even tired, all I wanted to do was just eat poor quality food, and that just drove that negative internal voice. And that's when I wasn't comfortable with myself. I was very much worried about how people would see me and view me. So I started kind of looking uh, at other people. So how would they view David? Oh, I need to be like this or I need to be like that. Whereas inside I was I, I didn't want to be that person at that moment of time.
8: Yeah, i have done a, I've done a good bit of reading around it because I've struggled with it as well. At my lowest, when I've at my at my worst, I probably would lean into that a little bit, too, like nothing on the level that you're talking about. But I think we've all done it. I think that there's something in Irish people as well that you're probably taught as a kid that you're being a great lad if you clear your plate. (laughs) And there's something that relates to a full tummy uh, as a kid with doing your ma proud or at least... Well, we,
7: we we were always told, think of the kids in Africa.
8: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there is some kind of civic duty involved as well. <laughs> but like, I think it's what I've read on it, and maybe you can tell me if this chimes with what you went through, is that comfort eating or any kind of substance abuse is at its core... You feeling that the pain is too much mm. and that the pain's bigger than you. So you, you take something to make you bigger or, or to take, to, to make you into more than the pain. Whereas in fact, you, you had to get to a point where you're like, look, I can take it. I can actually take the pain. But I, what I'm really interested in is, How did you get back from it? Because Christ, food's not going anywhere. It's not like heroin. You know, know, that old phrase, if you hang around a barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. Well, there's food is everywhere. You're in the barbershop all the time and Mm. now you're you're the foodie guy. Uh, So I I have no idea how you overcame this. And uh, I can't really find it anywhere as to how you rode back from the Double Domino's pizza at every single time. Like, <laughs> I'd love you to tell us exactly how you did it, because I'm sure there's a lot of people feeling a little bit of a spiral taking place now that they're locked in their own house and there's no way to escape the food.
7: Well, look, I, I'll be honest. It wasn't just one thing. It was probably a number of things. And like I kept like I didn't I didn't talk about this for a couple of years because I didn't know how to. I literally couldn't articulate how I was feeling. And then I also thought that nobody would understand because I came from the world of sport, athletics. Nobody's going to kind of be able to relate to how I'm feeling. And the, the biggest worry was that here's me who at the time, like from a profile wise, I was, I'll never forget, I was on the side of a bus, right? A Dublin bus. And I was down in Donnybrook and I was in my own car. And I was at the crossroads beside the, the bus garage in, in Donnybrook. And two buses crossed my eyeline with me on the side of each of them. And I remember looking, going, what is going on here? Because I had a big smiley, happy head in me on the buses. And I was sitting in the car having a really bad day, really bad day. And I remember thinking, how can I go and talk to someone and go, oh, I'm feeling horrendously shit about myself. Because I thought they'd just go, well, what are you talking about, Gillick? You're on the side of a bus. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It just didn't make sense. So, hey,
8: You're a world champion. What are you on about?
7: Yeah, it was like, what are you moaning about, you know? So I just didn't do anything about it. And if I'm honest, like... I think what had happened was I tried to go and talk to various people through like various counselors and therapists and this like that, but none of it really worked. You know, I'd walk into the room and I'd go, "Right, I'm going to give it a go. And I'd come back out and I'd be like, like, that was a waste of time and a waste of money. So I just shut that door. And then, to be honest with you, it was my wife, Charlotte, got pregnant. And I think that was the moment. That was the the catalyst that kind of made me realize, like, hang on a second. I'm going to have to look after somebody else here. And I always remember it, it was a Sunday and it was always a Sunday where, and I've, I've told this story a few times where I completely, not utterly overwhelmed, had a massive panic attack, but Charlotte was like eight months pregnant, heavily pregnant. And I just remember realizing to myself, how can I look after someone if I can't even look after myself? Um, because I think being an athlete and an individual performer, I was P1. I was priority one. Everything I did was about me even through our relationship with Charlotte like she understood that you know my sport came first and it was always about me and my performance and preparation et cetera. now that that was gone so i almost had to come to a point where i needed to let that go and when charlotte was pregnant i realized that was the moment you know i i need to look after myself now in order to look after this new baby mm-hmm. that's coming into the world and that was the moment where i said okay I'm going to get help, I'm going to get help and and it didn't happen overnight you know, I probably went through I think it was about seven different counsellors of sorts before I connected with someone that I kind of walked out of the room and I felt, you know what I feel good about that. And maybe, that's no discredit to the other six, but maybe it was just that moment that I, I, I was kind of in tune it. Was, I was ready to give it a go. And that was probably the start of it. Now, like I said, it didn't happen overnight. There was plenty of days and weeks. But the best way of describing it was, I probably went from every day was a dark day to every second day. And then it was every third day. Mm. You know, and I'll be honest, I still have my days. I still have days where I'm questioning things and I'm frustrated and I'm annoyed at myself, and I can instantly flip back to my athletic career and think, oh, I wish I was back there. That was comfort zone. You know, I still have that, but there's things that I do that kind of just get me back on track simple little things. I'm, I'm a little bit probably more aware of how I eat or the value of exercise or the value of switching off the phone and getting away uh, from social media, you know. But I think to answer your question, it was probably the realization that. Other people need me. You know, it's not just about me anymore. There's other people that rely on me and they're the priority now, not David.
8: In our final section, we're going to look at the thing that I seem to have an eternal fear of, probably because I spent a lot of my 20s limping as a result of a hip issue. A lot of people don't go for running or attempt running because of this fear of injury. It's a very real fear when you past 40 like myself and you're thinking I don't want to go back to that place but uh, as you'll hear from these elite athletes Eamon Coughlin Derval O'Rourke specifically and Sonia they too have had the struggle and they've come out the other side first thing you're going to hear is Eamon Cochland talking about going for a consultation with let's say an unusual consultant we then talk to Sonia who you'll be well used to hearing on the Tuesday show but here she's talking about uh, an injury that she had and that she hid in order to allow herself to compete. It's a rare insight and it comes from that 2014 interview that you can only hear back in the archive. And finally, Derville O'Rourke opens up to me about the psychological toll of a career threatening injury.
6: No, you don't think about trying to become somebody who will become an all-time great when you're pursuing your career. I know in 1979, I broke the world record for the indoor mile. I ran 352.6, and I was disappointed that I didn't break the 350 barrier. And Jerry Farnan had said to me, hey, Cocklin," he said, you've got to do something that's sort of... Roger Bannister has achieved. You've got to create milestones. You've got to become the first guy indoors to run under 350, just like John Walker did outdoors in 74. So in pursuit of that, in 1982, I actually got really badly injured. Mm. First of all, it was um, another stress fracture in my shin. Explain to Uh, people what a stress fracture is because- It's basically just a hairline fracture, a small, tiny crack in the tibia. From repetitive strain. Yeah, like when you're running 100 and 110 miles a week, twice a day sometimes three times a day weightlifting on top of that um then serious like track workouts 20 times 400 meters in 60 seconds with 60 seconds rest On tight, indoor, hard tracks in Manhattan College and running, you know, four-mile road races in 18 minutes, uh, your legs and your body's going to take a lot of pounding. So I was susceptible to those. And in 1982, I was diagnosed with the stress fracture, and the uh, surgeon at the time who was looking after me said, Eamon, the problem with your shin bone is it's perpendicular most shin bones have some kind of like a Slight a, bow, angle. a bow shape oh, right to them which means like a bow and arrow when you pull the, yeah. the, the you know the string um that it bends but mine wasn't so 82 was a washout year for me and as soon as I got the all clear from the stress fracture my doctor who was a jogger himself uh, I decided to meet him in his office and he gave me the all clear and let's go for a run after that and literally, I was only gone maybe a mile into a jog and my Achilles just started to hurt me. Well, that was February 82. And I was out of action all the way through to August. And I went from one doctor to another doctor. I had my f- uh, l- l- foot in what they call an EBU, an electronic Something unit where I'd sleep with it for ten hours uh, a night, trying to send shock waves in there to create, stimulate it stimulate the kind of circulation uh, needed to heal. Uh, yeah, right? I got a, a cortisone shot in it. I had my uh, foot then casted for four weeks, where they completely immobilized it. Came out of the cast, and it was like a cancer. Getting up in the morning, getting out of bed, you put your foot on the ground, and it was so so bad. Dark days. I had nowhere to turn, and then I came home, and Lord rest my dear mother. She said, Eamon, you know, horses get Achilles injuries all the time and they go to the vet and the v- they can't tell the vet where the pain is or how it feels. At all. So what did I do? I went to a vet yeah, a and vet. the vet gave me some kind of a gum and munching, I think it was called, to rub on my Achilles tendon. No, it didn't work. So I really felt my career was coming to an end because I began to reflect on Ronnie Delaney and his Achilles injuries, which curtailed his career at a very young age in the early 60s and I said, maybe I'm faced with this. But my great friend, and rival Thomas Wessinghage from West Germany who was an orthopedic doctor at the time he was I just completed his studies he recommended that I go to a Professor Klumper all the way out in West Germany and I headed off with Yvonne it was like going to Lourdes
7: <laughs> at the time, like looking <laughs> for a miracle yeah.
6: And I couldn't find Professor Klumper when I arrived there. I couldn't even find the clinic. And when I eventually walked into this building and I saw sports posters and memorabilia on the walls, I said, oh, great, this is Professor Klumper's <laughs> office. I found the right place. Only to be told by the receptionist, hey, I am sorry, Mr. Cochland, but Professor Klumper is on his vacation. And I go, what? However, she said, his assistant is here to help you. Well, over the course of Monday, Wednesday and Friday of that particular weekend, in August, they gave me like a 100 bolt or co- uh, cobalt, is it? Radiation therapy, where they zapped my heel. And the doctor said, go for a run today. And I said, but I haven't run in eight months, nine months nearly. And he said, no, go for 10 minutes today. Come back Wednesday. Went back Wednesday, zoom. He gave me another zap of radiation therapy. Went back on Friday, zump, another one. And within a week, I was back running almost an hour Unbelievable! Day, and the injury never, ever, ever, ever came back on me again. So I thank Thomas Vessinghaga for helping me out always. And it was thereafter then I decided it was time to pursue the world championships in helsinki it was time to try and get that uh, sub 350 mile so 1983 was the year which uh, i dedicated myself to that and sadly prior to that my great coach jumbo elliott passed away jerry Farnan passed away and my father who came out to the states to see me go for the 350 mile barrier he died in his sleep in my house in ryan new york where i was living at the time Can so it was a devastating about, yeah. period but at the same from both injury and from disappointment of losing the loved ones who got me to where I was to now trying to get that 350 barrier. So I had missed it in San Diego in 81 where I ran 350.6, but 1983 I came back and I said this is it and I ended up uh, running 349.78 and winning the World Championships.
2: Well, I think at that point in 1988, the biggest thing for me was to get back running to the level where I was in 1987, where I was the best. I had two Irish junior records. They were probably some of the fastest times in Europe and not far off the world for that age group. To just get back to that level at worst, you know, even Mm. though now I was a senior athlete. And um, in 1988, when this girl Vicky Huber, she came back from the Olympics. Actually, it was a year later, I think, um, when we were running, she because she w- took a year out when she went to the Olympics, she was able to then come back for the cross country in 1989. And at that stage, I'd somehow got my act together, and I was fit, and I was running good. And um, the coach, he kind of came and said to me, he goes, you know, he said, you're running really well. And, you know, she's really scared that you're going to beat her. <laughs> and I suppose, in a way, that kind of made me think, you know, that made it a bit real for me that... Yeah wow I was gonna so this was my third year at Villanova so it took three years for me to actually kind of make any kind of mark to get back up to the level that got me the scholarship in the first place
8: right and it took three years to get back there
2: yeah so it took that long So there's a lot of thinking time there you know how am I ever gonna do this again and in that time when we did run in the NCAA cross-country championships I'd run great all year and right before the championships I actually got injured again I had a stress fracture but I had, it was a week to go so I had to run so I ran and I ran okay and we won the team title but I had a stress fracture and I knew it but I had to kind of block that out and just
8: run the race did they let you run with it or did you just pretend not to know what was wrong well
2: I just kind of I knew you know you know you can deal with the pain for another week and then su- you'll deal with it afterwards like there's no way I could have walked away from the team winning the NCA Championships we were we were gonna win and I was a big part of the team. I yeah. was the second athlete, second best athlete on the team. And I think in the race, I ended up being the third scorer on the team. So I couldn't just walk away from that. And I suppose in a way, I felt if I wasn't on the team, then they probably maybe they wouldn't have won.
8: <laughs> this is the most. This is the most. I don't think anybody's ever heard this story. I don't know. But you're basically telling us that you ran on a broken leg <laughs> oh, to it was win kind, this. Kind of
2: a broken leg. You know, it's a crack stress fracture. It's a
8: stress fracture. But yes, I but, wonder. If, like for me college made me the man I am and I, I wonder how much you feel that coming through this adversity helped to build the toughness that everybody saw as being synonymous with Sonia O'Sullivan in your professional career
2: yeah I mean I suppose in a way I I suppose I was there for two reasons one to go to college one to run but I could you couldn't have one without the other you mm. know it wasn't and it's always the same when you're training or running is that if the training is not going well, nothing else goes well either, mm-hmm. you know. So if I get up in the morning and I can't go for a run, you know, because I'm injured or sick or whatever reason, then the whole day is like, you know, you might as well move on to, on to tomorrow because there'll be nothing productive done. Sure. Whereas if you get out there and you do your run and you know, you get everything straight in your head when you come back in and you can go a hundred miles an hour for the whole day. It doesn't matter how tired you are, you can just operate at such a different level. I don't know why or what it does, but this, it just gives, like I would say, the more you do, the more you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> the sure. The more leads to more, and the less you do, then the less it just tends to yeah, diminish. Yeah.
8: yeah.
5: It only bothers me if I'm in a particularly vulnerable state. Like during the summer, um, I was having massive problems with my Achilles tendon, and I was in pain like all the time. I'd go to the track, take painkillers, try and run, be in agony, and I was just pain does something to you you know mm. and if people then you know i d- tried to do a couple of races but i was in a lot of pain so they were obviously really bad and i was trying to find a solution i ended up having really big surgery on it because the problem was quite big and people were taking a few shots at, you know like the day and fall was happening kind of and that upset me at the time but then what i do is i just generally people won't really say too much stuff right directly to your face which is great thankfully it's more that they'll comment to other people or make comments in the paper or whatever. Um, so then I just try and avoid it. I just try, try not to engage. When I'm in a vulnerable state, I try not to engage in it. And I think when I'm very injured or something like that, I just won't. But if I'm running bad, but the reasons I'm running bad are because, are technical and that I know I'm in shape, I'll listen to all of it. And I'm like a crazy person. I take it all in and I remember and it becomes fuel. And like when things are hard and when I'm at a championship and I start getting nervous, then I start thinking, right okay well there's a lot of people who don't think you can do this and you're the one person who's always believed you can so just get out there and show them and it just i find i find it that i use it so yeah it's funny it just depends on the mode that i'm in but i do have a much thicker skin now
8: well there you have it that is our athletics compilation episode as i say all of those Conversations in full, an hour and a half to most of them are available in the Irishman Abroad Premium Archive on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I won't go on about it anymore, but this is a crowdfunded podcast. So, to keep this show going by paying five pounds a month over there on Patreon, you'll be helping this show to continue to grow and continue to provide you with those three episodes a week i'll be back with sonia on tuesday with more athletics chat if you want to go over and get these conversations a lot of people are finding that the best place to and the easiest way to sign up is through the patreon app you do it there and automatically your feed will populate with these brilliant episodes for now i want to say a massive thanks to brian Connolly for piecing this together to tina and mikey for making it all possible john marr is still working away john maher on the research in the background we've damien dempsey next sunday don't miss that one you can hear the full thing as always for the premium members and of course i'll be back out running myself for the irishman running abroad challenge In support of Jigsaw.ie, please do come over to idonate.ie and sign up or give a tiny donation what you can towards this brilliant cause. Otherwise, lads, I will talk to you on Tuesday.